Let us go ahead and get started this evening. Uh, let's begin with prayers, so please stand with me. Our gracious Father in heaven, glorious thou art, to be honored and worshipped. How we thank thee that thou hast not left us without uh, instruction and direction and guidance, but thou hast given to us thy holy word. And uh, we, even this evening, gather to, uh, to feed upon uh, thy word as uh, the good shepherd feeds us in green pastures. Pray, our Lord, that thou would nourish our souls, help us, our Lord, to approach thee uh, with faith and love and with uh, a desire to obey thee. Uh, bless this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 9. Uh, our focus this evening is on verses 13 through 17, but in order to kind of pick up the context, I'm going to begin with uh, verse 1. Uh, this is a unit, and we... I think would benefit from being able to uh, listen to the uh, entire chapter up to this point. So John chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is, by interpretation, sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him, that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed, and do see. Therefore had some of the Pharisees, or said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They say unto the blind man again, what sayest thou of him, that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, he is a prophet. In our last study, uh, Jesus uses a very unusual means of healing this man that was born blind. You recall that uh, he spits, uh, takes up some dirt, spits uh, upon the dirt, forms some type of a clay, a substance and puts it, anoints it upon his eyes with this clay. Now, I'm sure for this, uh, this man, 
though he could not see, he could probably hear, and uh, hearing uh, Jesus spit uh, into this uh, hand of dirt and then anoint his eyes with it was probably not the means that uh, the man himself would have chosen Jesus used, uh, should use to heal him. Uh, he probably would have preferred uh, if Jesus had simply put his hands upon him or even just spoken uh, and, his, and his eyes be opened. I mean, there's no problem with Jesus healing, but those means as well. Uh, but as we noted, um, when we went through, through those verses, uh, spitting was a, a sign of scorn, just as it is today. It was a, a sign of disgrace, a, dis, a sign of disgust, a, a sign of humiliation. And so even as today when someone spits upon somebody, uh, again, that's viewed as not something positive, pleasant, uh, exalting, but very humiliating. And so it was then as well. Uh, and so the question, why did the Lord Jesus choose that means to heal this blind man? If that's what spitting was all about, uh, and we looked at Old Testament passages uh, that speak of spitting, and it was always a sign of scorn and disgust and humiliation. Uh, and so Jesus, however, uses this means uh, that may seem repugnant, uh, to us uh, as, as simply a way to heal somebody. But it, we, we considered the fact that uh, Jesus is the one who chooses the means by which we are healed either physically or healed spiritually. And the Lord Jesus has many different means that he uses uh, to bring us to Jesus Christ. Uh, or uses many different means after we have been brought to Christ in faith. He uses many means to humble us, to make us teachable, uh, to uh, turn us from uh, particular sins in our lives, that we would turn to Christ and, and that we would uh, see our need of Christ, um, both spiritually and physically. And the means that he uses are not always pleasant. The means that he uses uh, can be very painful, uh, can be very uncomfortable, uh, can at times be, in our own minds, disgusting. But God would use that means uh, in order to humble us, in order to teach us, in order to instruct us. But Jesus is using this example of how he heals this man that was born blind in order to tell us and instruct us, um, we're the ones being healed. We don't have any right to tell God what means he uses to heal us. That's his prerogative. He's sovereign God. He's a holy God. And he uses whatever means he chooses. And so uh, we can't and we ought not to complain. This man did not ultimately... Uh, go back and say, Lord, uh, after, after he was healed, go back and say, Lord, uh, I, I didn't like the way that you healed me. Uh, he was rejoicing in the fact that he was healed and that uh, he could see. And so likewise, when we are, uh, truly understand uh, that God has healed us, we're not going to regret how God, uh, the means that he used to heal us. We're going to be thankful. We're going to be praising him that he loved us enough and was wise enough to know how to heal us uh, because not every method and means of healing is good uh, for uh, every one of us. Uh, some of us learn better from one means, uh, others better from another means, but God knows what is best. And so... That's a matter of us trusting him. Not my will, but thine be done. And if we're not willing uh, to be healed by the means that he chooses, then we're really not willing and we don't truly desire to be healed. Um, uh, we um, must be, if we are truly wanting to be healed, we'll be crying out, Lord, use whatever means necessary to heal me spiritually, draw, and draw me to Christ, to sanctify me, to grow me in Christ, to heal me of this physical infirmity 
that I have. Use whatever means that is necessary. And we'll pray that way with regard to loved ones that have uh, once professed faith in Christ, have departed from the faith, have gone their own ways, or living in sin. We'll pray the same thing for them. Lord, whatever means that it takes to draw them unto Christ, uh, use that means that would be effectual uh, in their lives. So now that's all review uh, to verse 13. That's where we're picking up, John 9, 13, this evening. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. When it says they, there in verse 13, brought uh, to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind, it's talking probably about the neighbors, uh, talking about those who knew him, that uh, it says in verse 8, the neighbors therefore and they which before had seen him that he was blind said, is not this he that sat and begged. And so people who knew him uh, apparently were the ones who took him to the Pharisees. The Pharisees here refers to the uh, Jewish Supreme Court, uh, the, the Sanhedrin, uh, to be examined uh, by them. And uh, basically this same judicial body, uh, the Sanhedrin, was uh, the body that examined back in John 5, remember the man that was healed, uh, that was paralyzed and, and was laying beside the, the pool of Bethesda and he could not get into the pool when the waters were stirred by an angel, the first one in was healed and he could not get in and the Lord did come and heal him and uh, uh, that healing likewise was taken before the, uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin. We're going to learn in a moment especially why in both cases uh, they took it to the Jewish Supreme Court uh, of that time. We learn this uh, uh, as we come to the next verse, verse 14, and it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So, um, the Pharisees, most of the, the Sanhedrin were not um, supportive of the Lord Jesus. Uh, they uh, were plotting in various ways to destroy him uh, behind the scene. Uh, but what particularly galled them was that Jesus healed on the Sabbath day. And this, uh, they uh, believed, was a violation of, uh, of the Sabbath. They believed that, uh, uh, and there are passages in the New Testament in which uh, the Pharisees say, um, let him you know, choose another day to heal on, but not on the Sabbath. And so in their mind and by way of their own um, tradition that they had inherited from their elders, for generations previous to them, they had come up with certain rules and regulations that were never found in the Bible. They were not found in the scripture at all. They thought that they were protecting the Sabbath day by forbidding healing on the Sabbath day. They thought that, uh, uh, that that was in some way putting a, a fence around the Sabbath and they thought they were keeping the Sabbath day holy by way of, of uh, uh, preventing or, or prohibiting uh, the healing uh, of people on the Sabbath day. They had a long list of things uh, medically that one could do and things that one could not do. Uh, and again, not found in the scripture, simply generated by their own minds. And uh, Jesus always took exception, as we know in the life of Jesus, to uh, the tradition of the elders. Um, and uh, you remember Jesus said uh, on one occasion that they made void the commandment of God by their tradition. It's certainly right and holy, the fourth commandment uh, among the Ten Commandments, uh, 
uh, to keep God's Sabbath day holy, not the Jewish Sabbath, but the Christian Sabbath um, uh, now, as we are in this particular time and age, the first day of the week, the day in which Jesus was raised from the dead, is the Lord's Day. And so uh, it, there certainly is a sanctity on our parts to, uh, to uh, keep the Sabbath day holy. But in keeping the Sabbath day holy, we must be ever so careful that we're not simply adding uh, our own um, uh, restrictions and our own uh, guidelines and all of the, uh, the types of things as the Pharisees were doing. We honor the Sabbath day uh, and we keep it holy as a day, an entire day, 24-hour day, not an hour that belongs to the Lord, but the whole day belongs to the Lord. Uh, but we, we don't add to, nor ought we to subtract from. Uh, what God has given to us in his word. The Pharisees were adding to um, what God had given to his word. Jesus, uh, the, being the son of God, had every right to heal on the Sabbath day. Uh, he says uh, uh, in another place, um, is it not lawful to do good on the Sabbath day when he healed somebody? Uh, to, uh, to basically... You know, he, he condemns them and says, even if one of your animals fell into a ditch, wouldn't you help your animal out of the ditch if, if it was uh, in that situation? And he knows that they would. And, uh, and so how much more one uh, who is um, physically ill, um, you know, those in that time who were demon-possessed, uh, those who had um, various physical ailments, um, the Lord Jesus uh, healed on the Sabbath day, and he made a point of doing so. He knew what they believed. He knew that the Pharisees were going to object to what he was doing, but he was teaching and instructing them in, in spite of their, um, their callousness, their stubbornness, of the fact that they were not following God's law. They thought that they were, but any time we add to or take away from God's law, God's commandments, we're not keeping God's commandments. We're keeping man's commandments when we add to or take away from it. And so we have to be careful, and that's what the Pharisees were doing. But what is, again, the category of deeds and, and actions that we ought to be doing on the Sabbath day are defined, again, not by me, not by a church, but uh, are defined ultimately by Jesus himself. If you turn to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, uh, the Lord Jesus tells us, uh, by way of his own example, what are the deeds that we are to do on the Sabbath, on, on the Lord's Day. Deeds, first of all, uh, deeds of necessity. In uh, Matthew 12, 1 through 8, uh, the disciples are criticized because they were uh, taking corn from corn stalks as they walked by the corn stalks and taking the, the corn off of that and uh, eating the kernels of corn uh, on the Sabbath as they went from one location. They were very busy by way of ministry on the Sabbath and so they didn't even have time apparently to stop and to have a meal and so on their way to their, their next appointment, as it were, they, they were pulling off grain from a stock and eating it. And they were criticized and condemned uh, for doing so. And Jesus basically um, uh, says that what the disciples did was uh, perfectly consistent with keeping the Sabbath day holy. That was not unlawful. That's a uh, deeds of necessity, things that pertain to our body and caring for our bodies um, are not um, unlawful to be done on the Sabbath day. And so uh, the next category uh, would be deeds of piety and having to do with worship, having to do with um, that which uh, is of, of a religious nature, um, uh, we could probably in, in include in that uh, uh, fellowship with other Christians on the Sabbath day. 
verse 9, Matthew 12, 9. Notice what, after this discourse or the, this discussion with the Pharisees, uh, verse 9 says, And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. So uh, deeds of piety, worship, uh, are uh, deeds that we are to do likewise upon the, the Sabbath day. And then uh, deeds of mercy, in Matthew 12, 10 through Matthew 12, 10 through 12. So basically, we've just looked at Matthew 12, 1 through 12 to find all three categories of deeds that, we, that are lawful to be done on the Sabbath day. Now look at what it says in verses 10 through 12. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on Sabbath days that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. So deeds of mercy uh, in caring for and helping and assisting uh, those who are in need um, uh, are certainly deeds that may be done on the Sabbath day as well. So, the Lord Jesus was always ready to minister to the sick and to minister to the needy um, any day of the week, but I think especially on the Sabbath day. Um, you know, it's, it's not without significance that it points out these particular occasions when uh, he is called uh, to respond to the Pharisees and their objections against him, that he was, he was saying, uh, no, what you are saying about what is lawful to be done on the Sabbath and what is not lawful uh, is not what the Word of God teaches and is not what the, the commandments in the Old Testament even teach. Uh, Jesus was a keeper of God's law. He perfectly kept God's law. So he wasn't breaking God's law. He was breaking the tradition of the elders. Uh, that was what he was breaking, not, not the law of God. And the Jews hated him for this. In fact, in John 5.18, it says, because uh, he broke their view of the Sabbath, uh, that they sought to destroy him. Uh, that was one of the reasons they sought to destroy him. I want to just uh, uh, point out, there is a difference between tr the tradition of the elders um, and what is, um, I think, biblical, which we call historical testimony. Tradition of the elders is, is adding to or taking away from God's word. It is placing... Uh, the addition of men alongside Scripture so that the tradition of men is equivalent to or above Scripture. That's, uh, that's uh, completely contrary to the Word of God. Jesus always condemned uh, that type of tradition. Uh, in the, in the uh, case of the elder, uh, the um, Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, Paul condemned it uh, as well. The, the uh, New Testament writers always condemned that type of tradition. Uh, and uh, so the tradition that we find, for example, in the Church of Rome uh, or in the Eastern Orthodox churches, where, again, their view of tradition is to elevate uh, the commandments of men and to place it alongside authority, equal in authority, if not above, uh, the authority of Scripture is what, again, is Jesus is calling the tradition of the elders. Uh, that is not what um, God would have us to keep. Uh, not the tradition of men, uh, but his word. And so um, the matter of historical testimony, which is, again, something we um, as a church uh, believe very strongly in, Historical testimony is not exalting uh, the 
the testimony of, of our forefathers, our spiritual forefathers, and making it equal to God's word. Uh, historical testimony uh, is saying that what has been practiced, if it is agreeable to God's word in the past, is something we should emulate, is something we should follow. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what historical testimony is. It, it's, it's a blessing, is it not, to know that we're not walking all by, you know, um, blazing a new path that no one has uh, ever blazed before, but that we're walking in that, that path that the godly, that the faithful uh, in generations past have walked in this, uh, in this particular path that's agreeable to God's word in doctrine, in worship, in government of the church, uh, that we are walking in their path as they walked faithful to God's word. So we're not exalting the example or the testimony of our forefathers uh, alongside the authority or exalting it above the authority of God's word. We're saying we only want to follow them as they have followed Christ and followed the word of God. And when they do so, we want to honor them. Uh, honor, you know, one of the, the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. Uh, it's not only talking about uh, our physical parents, but uh, I believe that we can honor those who have gone before us as well, our spiritual forefathers uh, in that commandment by way of uh, saying, you know, we don't worship them, we don't pray to them, we don't uh, treat them uh, as saints uh, in that sense, uh, but we do honor them uh, as being spiritual forefathers and we do um, want to walk in all the paths of faithfulness that they walked in. And, and that's, I think, um, what we find throughout the scriptures. Uh, Jesus talks continually about the prophets um, uh, of the Old Testament um, and uh, uh, the need for us to walk in the path of those who have gone before us. And so, again, I just want to distinguish between that which is unfaithful, that is tradition, the tradition of men, and exalting that alongside the word of God as far as having the same authority, uh, as opposed to historical testimony, which is not exalting it alongside the word of God, but is looking to the word of God and saying, that's the supreme standard. And all of my forefathers who have walked according to that supreme standard, I want to walk in their path. I want to act like them. I want to, I want to follow their example. Um, and that, that is what the Lord calls us to. We're not islands to ourselves. Uh, we have a history. Uh, the church has a, the faithful church has a history. Uh, we want to walk in the path of the faithful church, not in the path of those that have departed from the faith and from the, the, that which God has ordained. Verse 15, back to John chapter 9, verse 15. <clears throat> then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight he said unto them he put clay upon mine eyes and I washed and do see <clears throat> so the Pharisees here asked uh, the same question as the neighbors had asked um, you remember the neighbors again asked um, in verse 10, therefore said they unto him, how were thine eyes open? So they're, a they're asking a how question. How did this come about? Um, and the Pharisees, uh, just like the neighbors and those who saw him begging for all those years, uh, ask a very similar question when they say in verse 15 how he had received his sight. Uh, so they're again interested in asking how he was healed uh, but uh, a more important question is not how he was healed but who healed him. Um, 
really, the how question is relatively unimportant if we understand who it was who healed him. As we said, Jesus can heal by whatever means he chooses to heal a person. But, uh, and so the means are going to vary. The methods in which God uses are going to, going to be many, manifold. But the most important question is not how he did it, but that he did it, that he is the one who did it. And so that the glory is not upon the means, we don't exalt the means that God uses, we exalt the one who heals. Um, just like, again, God uses um, the sacraments, uh, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, we are commanded to, to, to use as, as means of God's grace um, that flow unto us uh, as, as we trust in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but uh, we're not to exalt the means um, that God uses. We're to exalt, that's to turn our attention to God uh, who blesses through the means that he chooses to use. Um, and so uh, prayer is a means of God's grace. Um, but we don't exalt prayer above God himself. Uh, prayer is simply a, a means that God uses uh, to minister into us uh, and to, um, uh, to reveal himself to us um, and to open our eyes and to give us uh, a sight uh, to behold the glory of God in the Word of God. But uh, again, we have to be careful that we don't exalt the means above, in other words, the how above the who. Uh, the who is far more important, infinitely more important. And if the how doesn't lead us to the who, um, then, then again, uh, it's, it's um, uh, not being used properly. Uh, the, the how should always, how God rescues and saves us always should lead us to God, should lead us to Jesus Christ. And that's one of the problems sometimes with uh, sensational t testimonies. I know that some have been rescued from, um, uh, you know, very deplorable uh, situations, and praise God for that. Um, that uh, and perhaps you know, even in our own lives, God rescued and saved us from things that we're ashamed to speak about. Praise God that He has done so. But we don't sensationalize what we were uh, and how God rescued us. We, we, we exalt God, not, not, the, not uh, the fact that we were such, you know, that, that we were in this situation and, and uh, you know, this happened and this happened and there's nothing wrong with relating that, but we have to be careful that the focus doesn't go upon the testimony rather than upon the one who rescued and saved us. Uh, and that's where it ought to be. The who question is far more important than the how question. Verse 16. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. Here we see that there was a, a division of thought in regard to Jesus among the Jewish Sanhedrin, um, this Jewish su Supreme Court. So you had two groups of people, it appears, in, this, in the Sanhedrin. On the one hand, I'm going to call one group, the majority of them, I'm going to call them legalists. And I'm going to call uh, the others, uh, uh, it's, quite, it's not quite uh, evidence that they are believers, but they're favorable. Uh, let's say they have a favorable opinion of Jesus. Whether they're believers yet or not, I don't know. But uh, I just want to look at these two groups of people very briefly. The, the one group, the majority of the group, um, I, as I said, I call them legalists. Um, there's basically two aspects uh, of legalism. 
Uh, legalism, we need to understand, legalism is not obeying God's commandments. Legalism is not following Jesus Christ. That's, that's not what legalism is. That's what biblical Christianity is, to, to want to walk in, in God's commandments. Um, to want to walk in the path of Christ who kept God's commandments. Um, who walk in the path of the apostles. And uh, again, uh, our spiritual forefathers. Uh, that's, that's not legalism in wanting to, to obey God. Uh, that, that, and when I say in wanting to keep his commandments, not additions to his commandments, not subtractions from his commandments, but to obey his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So it's not, it's Jesus, if, if legalism is keeping God's commandments, then Jesus was the greatest legalist that ever lived because Jesus never sinned. He kept God's commandments perfectly. And so again, we need to be sure that we understand legalism is not um, a desire, a love for God to want to keep his commandments. But legalism is, the, uh, this I would define as legalism. Those, first of all, those who uh, seek to replace God's commandments, like the Pharisees were doing, and following their, the tradition of their elders, so that they're adding to and taking away from God's commandments. That's the first aspect, I believe, or first form of legalism. Uh, that we need to ever be aware of, uh, that it is uh, a legalism when we uh, look at God's commandments and we begin to add our own um, restrictions um, in, in addition to God's word, or we begin to take away from what God has authorized and, and commanded us to do, uh, the Pharisees were saying, uh, as we already noted, you can't heal on the Sabbath. Well, God's, command, God's word, God's commandments uh, never said you can't heal. Uh, in fact, it promoted uh, the doing of good on the Sabbath day. And uh, Jesus exemplified that. So that's a form of legalism, adding to or taking away. Not the keeping of God's commandments uh, out of love, out of faith, Jesus Christ and love for God out of thankfulness in your heart uh, for all that God has done for you, Christ has done for you. Uh, that's not legalism. Second um, aspect of legalism is uh, those who make God's law a requirement in order to be justified before God, in order to be declared righteous before God. Um, we can never be declared righteous before God on the basis of our obedience to God's commandments because we can't perfectly keep God's commandments. Uh, we endeavor by God's grace because we love him and God forgives us and God takes even our, our sincere and feeble efforts to follow in his path and that is uh, passed through the mediation of Jesus Christ and is found acceptable uh, in his sight even when we don't perfectly keep God's commandments, but we want to, we desire to do so, we, we love him, and, and our, our motivation is to, to walk in his path. Uh, the Lord takes that, and he, uh, again, purifies even that, and presents that as, as uh, acceptable, as a good work in, in the sight of God. But we have to understand, that's different than, than one trying to be right before God, righteous before God, on the basis of his own law-keeping. That we cannot do because we are sinners. We, uh, even as Christians, we fall short. Um, we cannot perfectly keep God's law daily. We fail to keep God's law, not only by way of doing what God commands us not to do, but, but, but also by not doing what he commands us to do. Uh, sins of omission, omitting to do what we ought to do, sins of commission, doing what we ought not to do. And so in thought and in word and in deed, um, uh, again, uh, we, we, we all sin. Uh, we are all still sinners. And uh, so if any of us 
uh, are to be justified on the basis of our law keeping, none of us will be sa saved. None of us, uh, only Jesus would be saved. But we are justified and declared righteous before God, not on the basis of our law keeping, but on the basis of Christ's law keeping. He kept the law of God perfectly for us. And so when we trust in Jesus as our savior, we're trusting in him and his law keeping, his perfect righteousness. He forgives us of our sin so that he wipes away the guilt uh, and the penalty of our sin when we come to him through faith alone, trusting him as savior and Lord. But not only does he wipe the, the slate clean, but he adds to that his glorious righteousness. Um, and so when we stand before the tribunal of God, uh, we, are, uh, we stand only in the righteousness of Christ, in Christ. Um, and so again, we have to understand um, uh, that legalism is trying to be right before God, acceptable before God, on the basis of our law keeping. That's legalism. Again, it's not legalism to love God and to say, I want to keep uh, thy commandments, O God. I want to walk in thy ways. I want to be an obedient child. I want to, um, by my life, uh, draw others to Jesus Christ. Um, and again, I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. If we want to be conformed, which is what uh, the Lord in his word declares that he is doing. He's Through our sanctification, we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Through all that we experience, all of the trials, suffering, all of the hard knocks in the school of Christ, uh, that's all for the purpose of conforming us to Christ's image. What's Christ's image? Is his image... Uh, contrary to the law of God, God's commandments, God's holy and righteous commandments, or is the image of Christ a reflection of God's holy and righteous commandments? Well, that's what we are being conformed to. And so again, uh, Paul says uh, uh, you know, that we establish God's law. Um, we don't tear down, we don't destroy God's law. In Romans 3.31, he says, we rather establish God's law. He also says in 1 Corinthians 9.21 that we're under the law to Christ. That is, we're under the law to love and obedience of Jesus Christ. Not a, we're not under the law uh, by way of, as I, as I said, as a, as a ground for our justification. But we're under his law by way of it being a, a rule of righteousness for us. How do we know what's right, what's wrong with, without his law, his commandments? His, his word tells us, and his law fills from page to page, from the beginning to end, through the examples, through the precepts. Uh, uh, we find the law of God. Uh, and so the moral law of God there uh, instructs and teaches us uh, how we're to behave, um, how we're to view our culture. Why do we think differently? about most things than, than, than most people in the world uh, today well, because uh, we have a standard. We have God's word um, that we follow, God's law, God's commandments. And uh, uh, God's law and God's commandments, uh, sadly, uh, condemn uh, the culture in which we live now. Uh, and uh, we, we have to, again, decide, are we going to follow the culture, and that's the broad path that uh, Jesus says leads to destruction. We're going to follow Christ. We're going to follow his word, which is a narrow path. It says a few walk that path uh, comparatively. Paul describes the law of God as in, in Romans 7. He describes it as holy, just, good, and spiritual. On the other hand, the second group were, uh, as I said, a minority within the Jewish Sanhedrin, and uh, they were at least favorable. Uh, they had a favorable opinion of Jesus Christ. They asked the question, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? 
uh, doesn't appear they were willing to come right out and say, uh, I believe uh, that he is the Messiah. I believe that he is the Son of God. But uh, they, even by asking the question, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? It caused a division within the Sanhedrin. Probably in that group you had men like Nicodemus that came to Jesus by night back in John 3. Uh, or perhaps Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who sought the body of Jesus after um, he had died upon the cross, took it from the cross, um, uh, showed great honor and uh, reverence for the Lord Jesus and the way he prepared uh, the body of the Lord Jesus uh, for burial together with Nicodemus. And so probably men like that um, uh, are the group of men that were a part of this second group. Verse 17, uh, this will be the last verse we look at this evening. They say unto the blind man, now that they there is again the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees uh, in the Sanhedrin, they say unto the blind man again, what sayest thou of him, that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Sanhedrin now want the man that was healed to make some kind of a statement uh, about Jesus uh, who had healed him. Basically, they want to know uh, what the man thinks about Jesus. Uh, in other words, who do you think Jesus is? kind of a leading question at this point. I don't think that they um, have uh, pure motives uh, in asking the question. I think that they, uh, in as much as later on in the chapter, they, they excommunicate the man, uh, that they, um, they are uh, trying to find reason, I think, to basically accuse the man of, of blasphemy. Uh, trying to uh, lead him on so that he makes a confession that will basically say, we can discount this miracle altogether because this man is a blasphemer. He thinks that, the, that Jesus is, is the Son of God or is the Messiah. The healed man only knows and believes at this time that Jesus is a prophet, perhaps prophet like Moses or Elijah or Elisha. Uh, he believes that he was sent by God. He believes that Jesus was sent by God to speak for God and to perform miracles. He doesn't know much more, apparently, about Jesus, but he is at least convinced of that at this point. But is that not how very often the Lord leads us all? Um little by little uh, to the truth. Uh, we don't usually, though God can, uh, bring us uh, instantaneously, maybe like a, uh, on the road to Damascus uh, type of a conversion. But uh, we can probably think back before, before um, the time that we, in our hearts, knew that we uh, we're committed to Christ, that we, uh, we're trusting in Christ, uh, we can often see how the Lord was guiding and leading us in the events to bring us uh, to a place in our life where we confessed and professed Jesus alone to be our Savior and Lord. Um, and that's probably more often the case than just all of everything happening all of a sudden, you know, instantaneously. But that's how this man would appear came to uh, the Lord Jesus a little bit at a time. Uh, first of all, he's a prophet. By the end, uh, he's professing him to be the Son of God by the end of the chapter um, as Jesus comes to him and as uh, the Lord reveals himself to him by way of a conversation uh, at the end of this chapter. But this is a good question to end on uh, this evening. Um, who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Is he the eternal Son of God who became the Son of Man? Yes, he is. 
Is he the Messiah, God's anointed prophet, priest, and king? Yes, he is. Is he the crucified and resurrected Savior and Lord of all, sovereign Lord over all? Yes, he is. If so, have you received him by faith alone? Have you, in your own heart, reached out to the Lord in faith? Faith, again, remember, saving faith has three parts to, to it. Knowledge, agreement, and trust. We first must know the truth about who Jesus is and what the gospel is. That Jesus is the Son of God who became man in order to take upon himself the sins of his people. And there is only salvation uh, in trusting in him because he bore the wrath of God for his people. And he was raised from the dead to prove and to demonstrate that he was all that he said he was. He was raised from the dead to demonstrate that he actually did pay for sin because if he didn't pay for sin, he would have remained in the grave. But he was raised from the dead to demonstrate that the sins of those that he died have all been paid for. They have been removed. Uh, they have, uh, there is no further payment needed. He paid it all. And so, again, um, uh, knowledge, assent, or agreement. Uh, not only must you know the truth, but you must agree that it is the truth. You must, uh, you must have assent. Yes, that is the truth. Uh, I agree that it is the truth. It's not merely knowing a certain um, set of facts, but it's agreeing that it's true. And then the third aspect is trust. You don't simply stop there. Uh, James says that the demons, the devils, believe uh, and tremble. Uh, they believe that, uh, that Jesus is the Son of God. They know that to be true. Jesus is, they, they said so uh, when he cast them out. They called, the demons called him the son of God. Um, they agree that he's the son of God. They agree that these things are true. But the part of faith, saving faith, that they will not do is that they will not trust. They cannot trust. Uh, they don't have, they are dead in their trespasses and sins unless God gives them um, Faith, which, you will, which according to the scripture, he's not going to give the, the, uh, the, the demons uh, that. But, um, but uh, what they have not done and will not do is, is to trust. Um, and that's the third aspect of faith. So um, for each of us, we need to ask ourselves those questions. Uh, do I know the truth? Do I agree with the truth? concerning Jesus Christ, who he was, what he came for, what he accomplished on the cross, and that there's only life, there's only eternal life, there's only forgiveness of sin through him, and do I receive it? Trust. Do I receive Jesus, not only as a Savior in general, but do I receive him as my own Savior? That's the trust part. That's the reception part that we must do, and we cannot be saved if we do not personally receive him as our Lord and Savior. If so, if Jesus is that, that we've spoken of, do you live your lives as if all that was just said is true? Are there, in other words, these huge inconsistencies in our lives between what we profess and what we practice? takes a lot of, again, self-examination that we must not be afraid to do. Self-examination is very, very important in the Christian life. Um, conviction by the Holy Spirit is very important in the Christian life. It's not just uh, the unconverted that are convicted. 
It's we who are believers who are convicted because it tells us something's wrong. It's like pain in the body. It tells us something's wrong. And when we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, it says something's wrong. And I need to deal with it. I need to go to the Lord and make this right with God. Confess it, whatever it may be. And repent, turn from it, uh, and seek his forgiveness for it. See, there are inconsistencies in all of our lives. There's none of us that are free of inconsistencies. Um, and so it's not a question of who has inconsistencies. It's whether or not we're going to do something about those inconsistencies as, as those who profess to be Christians. And evidence of saving faith is that we care about the inconsistencies. A lack of evidence of saving faith is that we don't care about the inconsistencies in our lives. We can just practice the inconsistencies and just continue on and it doesn't matter. We don't care about them. All that's important is that other people think we're Christians. But a true Christian cares about the inconsistencies by way of profession and practice. Those who don't care about the inconsistencies need to ask why. Why don't I care about the inconsistencies in my life? What I profess, what I know to be true, and, and what I practice. Why don't I care? That's an important question because from asking that question, uh, I pray that God would then lead you, lead any of us, by asking that question, why don't I care, to Christ. Lead us to find uh, the help, to find the, uh, uh, the remedy to that lack of an answer, um, why don't I care? Uh, because we should. And only in Christ will we, only in Christ will we truly care when we come to Him, when we trust Him, when we love Him, when we obey Him. That's an evidence. Take great comfort, dear ones. Take great comfort in the fact that you care about the inconsistencies in your life. That's an evidence from God that you belong to Him. A lack of evidence, as I said, should frighten you. A, l a lack of care should frighten you. And you should be casting yourself upon the Lord. We'll stop there this evening. So let's uh, stand in closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank thee for the challenges that thou dost issue unto us through thy word. Uh, Father, we uh, by nature are very dull of understanding, very stubborn, rebellious in our hearts. But by grace, Lord, our hearts have been turned from stone uh, to flesh. Uh, they've been taken from being hardened to being softened so that we care about these things. Lord, we, we pray for uh, each one, Lord, present and those who will hear uh, this study uh, through technology. We pray, Lord, uh, from the youngest to the oldest. And uh, Lord, we thank Thee for those who are younger, who are present with us. Uh, we thank Thee for uh, all who... Uh, have come to hear and to be a part of the study this evening. We ask our Lord that uh, that Thou would minister uh, to each of us. Uh, that Lord, Thou would draw us unto Christ. May we be those Lord who are not afraid to examine our our hearts, as David prayed, "Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So may we do, Lord, to the glory of Christ and may, Lord, it, may it bring us uh, out of uh, any laziness, lukewarmness, uh, apathy uh, in our hearts and our lives as Christians uh, to become very serious about our, our faith, our trust, our love, and our obedience to Jesus Christ and his, his commandments. We thank thee for these truths from thy word, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So before you're dismissed, uh, uh, we typically just have a, a, a period of question and answer. If there are any questions, uh, I'll be glad to try to answer your questions from the Bible study this evening. So, any, any questions? All right. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, you are dismissed. I kind of do have a question.